Okay, we take it from John 3.16. For God so loved the word that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the word to condemn the word, but that the word through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We're in John chapter 3. And in John chapter 3, Jesus has been approached by a religious leader at night. He is going under the cloak of darkness because he's afraid. There's been quite a bit of talk about Jesus. He's caused quite a bit of stir. And the stir that he's created has has caused the religious ruling party of the day to be quite upset. He's kind of turning things on their ear, and they don't like it. But this man's curious. And because he's curious, he comes to Jesus at night. Now, we don't really know exactly what his agenda was in regards to what he was going to ask, because Jesus never really gives him a chance. The man comes in and he says, Teacher, we know that you're a prophet who's come from God. After all, who else could do such miracles as the ones you're doing? And Jesus immediately tells him, You must be born again. We're not going to take any time and sort of schmooze up here. We're going right for the throat of this. And the man has an eternal passion or hunger in his heart, but his mind is trapped within the confines of this world. And so though his heart is hungry for the things of eternity, his mind has no way to satiate that hunger. So he can't dwell in this place that he's supposed to be representing, this place beyond the temporary. So when Jesus says you must be born again, he doesn't get it. And he thinks, how in the world is that going to happen? That just doesn't make any sense at all. Jesus will have to give him the how. And twice he'll give the question he asks. How? How? How can I do that? How can a man do that? Jesus then, if you will, pulls out math. I'm sorry, uh, let's try that again. Numbers 21. And in Numbers 21, he refers to this Situation where Moses had to make a bronze serpent, a representation of their sin, if you will. And as it was raised up on the pole, when if they were to look at it, they would actually be healed. And we look at that and we kind of see the idea that Jesus is referring to the cross. We get that. That's a fairly simple matter of fact. He'll use that again uh, later on in John, for which it'll say, for this he spoke about the manner in which he would die. However, we forget the context, which is that Nicodemus is asking, how? How does a man get born again? And Jesus, this is the route. The route we're going to take for this to happen is that I have to pay for your sins. I have to be that serpent on the pole. I have to be the symbol of your sin and be raised up on the stick, if you will. That if you'd look to me in faith, you'd be born again. There's the idea. Now, the reason I say that is is that the verses right just before that are those verses. Verses 14 and 15. Look at them with me in in your Bible. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There is the context. Jesus then is still speaking. And then, of course, there's, con- there's question and sort of debate on whether or not this is now some form of added response by John or not. Except the problem is, is there's this word far, for, gar, in the Hebrew, or in Greek, and it means because, because God so loved the world. And I've got to be honest, it's one thing when you just sort of quote John 3.16 and stand alone, it is an amazing verse. As a matter of fact, we're happy to bring it to every football match or football game. It all depends on what side of the pond you're on. And we'll flash it if we can, because this verse basically is the whole gospel, if you will, encapsulated. 
And yet, our context deepens it to me. Because what our context tells us is that Jesus is speaking to a man. And we have no record of when, in our text, uh, if you will, that, um, that Nicodemus leaves. There's no place where we kind of have, okay, well, that was enough. And now Nicky's kind of going on and he's like figuring the rest of it out. I kind of get the idea that he's still there. And as he's still there, Jesus is speaking. And what would it be like for Jesus to be the son that he knows in this situation? Now, quoting this verse for us is, is actually, it's a, it's a much easier verse for us to quote because we're not the son who's being sacrificed. But imagine being Jesus, the one who says, for God, and he's speaking of his father. The one who Jesus would say, you loved me before the world began. This love that these two had as a father and a son. And now he's like, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And it's like, imagine Jesus wanting to say, for God, my father so loved you, he gave me. That's what he's saying. Now, initially, when I look at this, these kind of verses... I can't help but just sort of wanting to go slowly because of everything from this is every bit of this is a beautiful morsel to savor. But in light of the recent attacks that we've seen in the last three months, I was forced, in, in essence, to really take a look at another thing as well in this in comparison. Um, as you're aware of, in the last three months, we've had three very horrible incidences, a march actually being our first one, and then last month. Uh, then the Manchester, and then a couple weeks later, of course, the horrible one here in London Bridge. And there has been a big movement among the Christian community, I don't know if you've heard it, by those who are actually not only outspoken, but cons- considered to be authorities within the Christendom. That's saying, well, we really do serve the same God. And so I, I don't know if you know this, but before I was a Christian, I didn't want to be one. I, I saw it as something too familiar in America. I wanted something more exotic. I've always had a taste for the exotic. And I remember reading every book. I got a minor in religious philosophy because I really wanted to know what was out there. And I remember reading the Quran. And, and I want you to know, uh, reading it was the scary, and I'm just going to say for the record, it was the scariest book I've ever read. Uh, only because, I mean, there are books that try to haunt you and some guy's out there and he's going to get you. That's one thing. But for a person who was naturally violent, this book really appealed to the much darkest parts of me. Uh, and it just, it was very concerning for me because I knew that if I were to bite into this, I knew the person it would become and I knew that person would be a danger to everyone, including myself. Now, the reason I say that is I'd like to compare for just a quick moment. Now, please understand when I'm pulling out verses and I'm not going to be reading but one verse in the Quran, but I'm going to be giving you verses so that you can check because like always, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume what I'm saying is the truth. Search the scriptures and let them be true. And you can check all my sources, including this. The reason I say that is there's a huge difference between what we know in scripture. If, we were, if, I, if you were to finish the sentence, it's a three-word sentence. According to the Bible, God is what? What do you have in scripture for that? Love. That was actually quite simple. You don't have to be very deeply knowledged in scripture uh, to actually know that according to scripture, it says God is love. Yet, of course, if we were to compare it on the other side, the big statement is God is great. Al-Akhbar, that's the whole statement is God is great. When people are killing other people, that's the statement. Because you really can't say God is love while you're actually slaughtering people in front of you. It doesn't seem to work. Now, the reason I'm even bringing this up in the first place is that a thousand percent more times is this reference of love in, in the Bible than it is in the Quran. But there's something that I found just really interesting, and this is the thing I just wanted to throw out, just to sort of nail this, uh, put this nail in the coffin and keep it down for good. If I were to read the Quran, and again, I'm not suggesting you do, uh, because it is not, it's, it's a false book according to the text, according to, according to scripture. But it does say this in it, so at least you know. 
that the, the actually makes at least 20 different verses where it says God doesn't love someone. I don't know if you're aware of that. Now, nowhere in Scripture do we have that. But according to the Quran, it says, for instance, the Al-Kafrin, Al-Kafrin means the unbelievers, 2, 276, 332, and 3045. It says he does not love the unbeliever. Ad-Delamin, uh, which means the wrongdoers, that's 357, 3140, and 4240. All say he does not love the wrongdoer. Al-Fasidin, uh, which means the corrupt, 2205, 567, 2877, 4107, and 4148, uh, says he does not love the corrupt. The Al-Muwahadin, which means the perpetrator, he does not love, according to 219, 590, 755, 858, 3118, 5723, 436, 1623, uh, and 2876. I know I went quick because I really don't want to focus on this. But I do want you to recognize that at least in 20 different places, it says according to that particular book that he does not love these individuals. But it does say this in 61.4, and this is the one verse I am quoting. And I'm now quoting for what it's worth from the Abdullah Yusuf Ali translation. And it says this, Truly, Allah loves those who fight for his cause in battle array as if they were a solid, cemented structure. And that is actually who he loves, according to the text. So it doesn't say he doesn't love anyone. He's more than happy to love those who fight in his cause in battle array. I just find that a little bit alarming. Now I want to compare that for a moment now just to what it says in our scripture in regards to this. And just so you know, this is one of the reasons I'm extremely strong on the aspect that this is not the same God. It tells us here that God so loved the world. Not the righteous, not the do-gooder, not those who fight for his cause, but the world. This is not the same God. And the first thing we read in our text is, according to the way we have it in the English, is his motivation. The reason why God did what he did is because he loves. And he loves people who don't love him. In Romans 5, 8, it tells us that when we were yet sinners, by the way, that's the unrighteous, that's the unbeliever, that's the wrongdoer, Christ died for us. When we were, according to Romans 5, 10, when we were enemies in our hearts and minds to God, he reconciled us through the death of his son. In Ephesians 2, 5, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, you can't get more guilty or corrupt than that. And it says, in, in all of that, the whole point of it is that not that we loved God, but that he loved us. As a matter of fact, it says in 1 John 4, 19, that we love him because he first loved us. As a matter of fact, there are more in just a small handful of verses in 1 John chapter 4, from 7 to 21, there are more references to love in that than the entire Quran in regards to God. That tells me something. That's just a small handful of verses from a tiny book that's five chapters, and it's even one part of a chapter. When we're talking about being motivated by love, we need to recognize also the danger we put, the spin we put on it. Because the spin we put on it is actually a different definition to the word love. There's our problem. According to this, God so loved. In other words, to the extreme. Let me tell you to what degree God loved. And it wasn't just that he so loved the righteous. It was that he so loved any human being born to this planet. And as far as I'm aware of, there's no human being born to any other. So that qualifies you and anyone else. And it tells us that God's love drove him to action. And it tells us in the next statement that he gave. And that immediately tells me that love, according to God, is a giving love. It's not a taking love. 
It is not a stripping love. It is not a humiliating love because we all know that from 1 Corinthians 13. It gives us very much the heart and rendition and rhapsody of love through 1 Corinthians 13 and the very attitude of it. But it tells me here that our God, the originator, the initiator, the author, the perfecter and finisher of my faith gave out of love. The love that he had so abounded in him was to such a degree that all he could do as a response to that was give. But it wasn't just that he gave. It's what he gave. Or more likely, or more specifically, who he gave. Because God could have, in his righteousness, given vengeance or vindication. You'd say, well, God in his righteousness gave. His righteousness led him to give. The problem is we deserve his vindication and we deserve his vengeance. There's the problem. And yet God so loved me. He so loved you when you hated him, when you mocked him, when you laughed, when you said, oh, whatever, and tried to make it as if God were a simple byword. And yet in all of that, God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son, not vengeance or vindication, but rather his very own son, as it says in Romans 8.32, if God would not withhold his only son, what exactly do you think God would withhold from you if he wouldn't withhold his only son? In the simplest sense, God gave to the degree of that which was most precious to him. And immediately I'm driven to this thought because first of all, inevitably my first thought is, okay, this love, when I speak of love to my wife or to my children, is this a love that gives? Is this a love that's known for giving? Is it more, is it synonymous in my behavior? Or is it kind of like what love is? It's kind of a fishing to get somebody else to respond so I can be more comforted by the fact that I think they still love me. And I can't help but think that the greater the sacrifice, the more true the commitment and the more pure the love. I understand why David would say in 2 Samuel 24, 24, that he wouldn't give to God that which cost him nothing. If he's going to love him, he couldn't do that. And I wonder how much of my Christianity cost me nothing. And yet Jesus would tell us in John 15, 13, that greater have no love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And yet, you know, I've got to be honest with you. What if the father just gave up his life? It took me to become a parent to realize that there's a greater love than giving your own life. Now that's going to sound challenging, but I challenge you to prove me wrong. Because when God defines love, he seldom defines it from Jesus' perspective, though he will. But he defines it much more from the Father's. And until you're a parent, and I know this sounds horrible, but until you're a parent, I don't know if you could understand because I certainly couldn't. But let me ask you, is there anything that you have or are that you would rather die than let go of? Is there anything at all that you're at that place where it's like, you know what, to be honest, dying would be better than letting this go? Well, then you know how the Father feels. Only to a mild degree because we're evil and he's not. For him, he would rather die than lose his son. And he shows his greatest love in giving his son. And I can't even imagine what it would be like for Jesus to be on the cross and to cry out or in the garden and to cry out, Father, if there's any other way and to to sweat like drops of blood and for the Father not to run to his aid because I sure would want to. And man, when you love your kid like that, there's a part of you that would be tempted to say, you know what, let them all go to hell. You know, if that's what it takes just to keep you. 
You can be thankful I'm not God. But God so loved you, and He so loved me, He gave even that. He gave His only Son. Now there's a reason for it. And I can't help but just think what it would be like for Jesus to say this. Had he not the Father's heart, Jesus speaking this, well, he would have probably said this very differently, but I can only hear it in a tenderness because there's a heart to realize that he has to. I mean, imagine, there he is thinking, the Father has to give me up because he loves you so much. And I never read anywhere in this that Jesus is jealous or angry or bitter at any of this because he gets you too. So there's love happening all over the place, but this is a love that that surrenders and sacrifices. And I look and I think, wow. I I recognize why the world goes after the husband and wife relationship, the father relationship, and the word love more than just about anything I can think of. Because to be honest, it's all of our artillery when we try to speak about God in the gospel. A father giving his son, giving up his son, For the majority of, let's face it, for the majority of our culture, most fathers do. I mean, think about how many people in this room are genuinely represented by a father who has been committed to sacrificially serving you for this life. And that's got to be rough. So when we try to explain a father giving his son, and you're talking to someone who's like, I don't know if I've met my dad. Well, I've met him a few times, but I know more the picture than I do the person. Well, I I suppose, I I think I remember what his voice sounds like. It doesn't have the same impact, does it? When you talk about Jesus being the groom or loving you, but you've heard love and you know what love is. Love is abuse and love is using and love is impregnating and love is being loose and and you realize all of those things and you tell people Jesus loves you and there's no part of that you think, wow, that is great. Or God the Father loves you and you think, well, that's just weird. Because the world has so defined the terms. I've often said it'd be easier for us to say that God likes you. Because at least that still means something. To say God wants you. And even that would make us wonder for what? And yet God so loved you. And he so loved the Pope and the pervert. He loved the decent man and the decadent. He loved the murderer and the man who's nice. He loved them all. Because every one of them is going to have to go to the cross and become new. It doesn't matter how nice you are. The Pope needs a new Pope. The Pope needs a new person just like the rest of us. And we lay all those things down. But he tells us this, that there's no first move on my side. It's only a response. God so loved, so he gave. But he gave with a hope. He didn't just give and then give permanently. He gave over his son, knowing he would get his son back. And yet when he gave his son, there was a hope, and that was that I would believe in him. That's the rest of this verse so far, isn't it? That whosoever... Now, I want you to recognize what that means, whosoever. Whosoever means anyone in that world, if they were willing to believe. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter your race. 
It doesn't matter what gender you are or associate with or decided you were this morning. The bottom line is we all lay that person down at the cross, but Jesus died for you. And this term believe, and it is important to note, is in the present active participle. Active means you make the choice. It is important to recognize this isn't a belief that comes upon you when you blink and all of a sudden you've discovered you believe in God. This is not the kind of thing that sort of overwhelms you like some kind of great wave of faith and the next thing you know you're super spiritual. There's a choice inside of you because of the trust that you have and the trust that I have that what God is simply saying in the simplest sense is God is not demanding a payback for this thing that he did with his son, but rather he's demanding a reasonable response which is to rest in what he did. If he paid the bill and I trust that he paid the bill, then I can live without fear of that debt because the debt's canceled. And we're going to see that that debt, the payable, was perishing. It's to perish according to the rest of this verse. If God did it, he did it right the first time and he did it for good. That's what we're going to see here in a moment. So he did it. We did nothing to earn it. We weren't so darn lovable. God didn't see such great potential. In the end of it all, we were his enemies. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, and we were sinners. We were children of wrath, according to Ephesians 2. And God sent his own son as a gift, as a sacrifice, as a ransom. And in that, I go from God's motivation to God's motion to his invitation. And his invitation now is if I'm willing to believe in him. Now, I'd like to think everyone in this room has. I know that there are a lot of people listening online too, so I have to give a choice at the end of this whether you would say yes to this. Are you really putting your trust in what God did? I mean, when we think about God loving us, isn't it easy to picture Jesus in comparison and how seldom it is to actually realize that it's the Father who deserves so much credit? Man, to give up his son like that. So my part's a response. Will I trust in him? Will I put my trust in him? Because if I would be doing that, this is what God would give me as a result of that. From the invitation to the initiation, I wouldn't perish. And that tells me something right there. And the idea of it, by the way, is that Jesus then was on a reconnaissance mission. That was the whole point. Jesus was sent to rescue. Because obviously, and don't miss this, all God needed to do for the whole world to perish was nothing. Let me say that again. All God needed to do for the world to perish is nothing. All we need to do for those around us who don't know the message to perish is nothing. They need to know. And we know. But according to this, it tells us that if we would really be willing to trust and put our trust in him, then we wouldn't perish. Jesus is more than than just a hand up out from the copter to pull me out of the water. He is more than just my rescuer. He is also my ransom. That's the point of this. Because it says that I wouldn't perish. And I recognize this is the heart of the Father. This is the heart of God. Second Peter 3.9 says, God is not slack as some would count slackness. And he's no slacker. But he's long-suffering toward us, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. First Timothy 2.4 says that God desires 
all men to be saved. And again, from the Pope to the pervert, God wants them all saved. He will not get what he wants, but he has paid for them all. So understand, as far as God's concerned, anything that needs to happen to free every human being has been done. The only thing left is for them to say yes. That's the only thing. Is that crazy to think that there are people out there right now trying to earn something God wants to give them? And there are people out there trying to ignore the fact that God so loved them that he gave this, he gave this price that was greater than any other price just to redeem them. And they try to go on living life like that never happened. And we are, we are sitting in this room and feeling comfortable because I recognize I'm not perishing. It tells us for what it's worth in Ezekiel 18.32 that God takes no desire in the death of the wicked or the one who dies. And he says, therefore, turn and live. He will reiterate that, if you will, in Ezekiel 33.11. But it's important to note, rescuing me to free me from, uh, to just return to my peril is never God's way. I remind you, when God does something, he does it once, he does it right, and he does it for good. So if God were just simply to have me not perish, but give me nothing in its, excuse me, to give me nothing in its stead, that would be nothing like God. Because God always gives me something in return. He's not a God of nots. He's a God of instead of's. And so we give him that perish, uh, if you will, the perishing, uh, we give him that death. We give him, if you will, that condemnation and that guilt. And in return, he gives us everlasting life. And don't miss that it doesn't say we'll have everlasting life, but have. That is in the present active subjective. And what that means is the moment you said yes to Jesus, you got eternal life. It wasn't like, well, I know someday I'm going to get it. God does not do temporary. He replaces And he has replaced my emptiness for abundance, my despair for delight, my bleakness for beauty, and my horror for heaven. And he gave me all of that simply because I said yes. That was all part of of the package. And his surrendering his son, he gives me that in return. And it is not get eternal life later. It's now. Jesus will say in John 5, 24, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life right now. It says in John 6.40 that whoever whoever sees the Son and believes in him will have everlasting life and Jesus will raise him up on the last day. It says in John 6.47, Assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. John 12.50, I know that this is God's commandment, everlasting life. John 10.28, and I give them eternal life. And then he tells us in John 17.3, this is eternal life. You want to know what it is, what you got? They may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Because this is what real life is. This is the best there is. I was just uh, on a bus a couple, uh, maybe two, three days ago, and Corona's out with their new ads again. And it always seems like they're the same ones, but this time it's a little bit different. I mean, Corona's kind of a Mexican beer, and it's not like I'm advertising beer. That's not my point. Is that they always seem to go with the beach, and they always seem to go with surfers and that whole bit. And it's almost always the same phrase, this is the life. And I can recognize being on a beach sounds pretty awesome in the sun, with a surfboard sounds really awesome, but it isn't the life. This time they've changed it only with this, that it's a bunch of Jamaican guys. I thought, well, you just don't see that happen a lot. And I thought, what? Yeah, man. So, you know, it's like, anyways, it just seemed like a funny, funny ad. But the part for me, though, is that I recognize there are these moments we have in life, you know, where just for the moment the world seems to stop and everything feels and looks and sounds and smells beautiful in that one brief moment. 
the first time your elbow rubs against the person you're going to marry. And everything seems to stop, and it's all just right. The problem is, the very best moments this world has to offer will always be temporary. And then you fight to get it back. Whatever it is. And it's a beautiful song that the first time took your breath away, that the next time was still really cool, but once you put it on your playlist, the eighth time you've listened to it, you're yawning when you're listening to it. Even though the first time it took you for a ride. And that's the case with things that are all full of sin that are fun for a season and the first time seem to be so magical and then, of course, with each time it gets less. And if you could just bottle that moment where everything in your life seems right, can you think of any moment like that that you've had? Any moment at all? Or just for that moment, if that moment could be eternity, everything would be perfect. That's what he's speaking of here. To know him, if we would embrace all that he is and allow him to be so everything that he desires in us, that would actually become our life. It doesn't mean that it'll be absent of challenges, speed bumps, obstacles. It just means that they aren't debilitating like they used to be. They're not disabling like they once were. Now, to be honest, they're, they're a reminder that it doesn't matter like it used to. Like that. And she goes, don't you want that? And I can't help but think of that ad. For some people, maybe, and I don't know how many people in England or in London specifically are going to be on a bus you know, going by this big ad and thinking, oh my goodness, I need to buy that beer so that I can feel like I'm surfing with my brother somewhere, you know. I don't know who that reaches out to, but I know what it's like to be out on a beach and be there with a board and have for that moment where you catch the wave and you're like, oh, this is so good. I could have gotten so beat up and instead I'm really enjoying this moment. But it is nothing, to be honest, compared to this moment we had today. When, I'm, when, I, when I praise God, my eyes are closed because whether you're there or not, I mean, it's lovely and I love to hear you saying, please believe me. I love having you here. It isn't like, that's not the point. But my eyes, are, my eyes are on the Lord. But every once in a while, you know, I think my eyelids just get tired of staying closed. And so they pop open for a second and I'm like, oh, I'll close them out. But for that brief moment, I'm looking and I see my beautiful wife and her hands are just out and she's praying. I'm like, oh, for that moment, if I could bottle that second, and like it, it choked me up. I, I got caught up, but I, I had to back up for a second. I'm like, God, thank you. Thank you for that moment. How sweet that was. And he's like, wow, you think that's great? Wait till you see when sin is no longer even present and what that will be like for you. I want you to recognize we are the only people on the planet that have anything like this. I mean, we're not just talking about we have all of it. We, we have like in abundance and other people get bits of it. We have, we're the only one who has any of it. I mean, the closest thing they have are these reminders that there's something special out there that they get for a brief second that they, <clears throat> that when it gets near them, they try to grab a hold of it and it's gone before they can get their hand out. And they're like, oh, the first time your child calls your name, you hold them and they look and they giggle 
And they may be giggling because they're farting, but you don't even really care at that moment. It's, you know, to be honest, some of my best friends, they still giggle and do that. So I don't know. But anyway, but it's like, you know, just at that moment, you feel like you've connected and there's something really special there, you know. And at that moment, it's like the whole world could be on fire and it really just doesn't matter. It doesn't have the same impact it would have. And there's a world out there and it's like they're gasping for this. It's like they've been underwater for so long and for just a brief second they pop up and go, (gasps) and here we are breathing the abundance of that oxygen. And we look at that and we go, wow, it must really suck to be you. I want want you to recognize with me today that the reason why we can even do this is because God so loved us. He wasn't contractually obligated or, well, you know, I'm really good and decent, so I guess I better probably do this because otherwise people are going to doubt how good I am. His eyes can't get off of you. His thoughts outnumber the sand on the shore for you. His plans are for good and to give you a future and a hope not to harm you. And he still rejoices over you with singing. And you are not going to find that in another book. I don't care whose book it is. The rest of this is just commentary to that simple statement. Listen, verse 17. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. The world was already perishing. Why would he have to send the son into the world to condemn the condemned? Imagine somebody hiring you to walk down death row where all the criminals that are supposed to be, we better have to, in this country, we have to go back 100 years, right? Well, like the punishment for trying to hang yourself was hanging. Did you know that, by the way? I guess it's like, well, you didn't do it right. We'll show you how to do it, right? I don't know. How's that work, right? But imagine you were there and, and you were hired. You know, it's like Sooty gets hired with Bruno to go and condemn every one of the condemned you know, men. They're all on death row and you're just going to be there and I'm just sent to tell you you're guilty. They're like, duh, that's kind of why I'm in this cell right now. That's why I'm confined right now. That's why I'm arrested right now. Because I've got caught for something, although most of them will probably still tell you that they didn't do it or more than likely these days they'll just say, so what? It isn't, I don't deserve this. God bless you. Wow. Jesus didn't need to come to earth to condemn a world that's already condemned. That makes no sense at all. The world was already dying. The world was already in peril. Jesus was sent on reconnaissance mission. He was sent, well, to be honest, it needed no help perishing. It was drowning in its own guilt. And that's you and me because we were part of that world. The difference between us, let's say, in the Noah story, if you will, is that we actually were the ones pouring forth the flood. The flood was unfortunately just our guilt. But for God to do nothing, the world would perish. It's all he had to do was nothing. But for the world to be rescued at all, God must act. So he acts, and he does perfectly and absolutely like he always does. Once and for all. Perfectly for good. So he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, not the church, 
but that the world through him might be saved. In other words, God didn't just die for a select few. Jesus died for every human being, but not every human being will say yes. And some will say, well, then the blood was wasted. And I would say, yeah, yeah, it was. God's blood was wasted on those who would say no. But you can't stand before him and say that he didn't give you the offer. There, the blood of Christ was enough to wash every sinner clean and purge him and purify him to the uttermost. And yet, there'll be those that would say, I don't think I need that. I'm not filthy anyways. And then there will be those who say, you know, no thanks. I'd rather do it myself. For the world to perish and go to hell, God had to do nothing. But for us to actually be saved and go to heaven, he had to do everything. And notice again, it's the same thing in verse 18. He who believes. It'll always be that. It doesn't say that you have to go and Go to these classes and do all of these things and memorize these things. Because God, let's face it, imagine trying to do that for a drowning man. For a drowning man, all he has to do is trust his lifeguard so he can pull him to shore. That's all he has to do. It's amazing how many people would rather drown. You jump in and they'll be like, you? I want you to save me. I was starting to drown for that cute thing over there, you know, or whatever. Don't they all look like something from Baywatch? Understand in all of that, when you're drowning and you're aware that you're drowning, you're happy. It doesn't matter what you look like. You could be scary as anything. The bottom line is, you're just happy to not drown. And we are a reminder, by the way. If we live the abundant life Christ has given us, we are a constant reminder that the world is drowning. Because we are actually walking on water. And that's got to be really irritating. So he who believes in him is not condemned. Notice it doesn't say will not be condemned, but is at this very moment. But he who does not believe is condemned already. That, by the way, is in the perfect passive indicative. Perfect means it's done for good. If you're not willing to believe, that's the way it works. Passive, the condemnation is something that is inflicted upon you, if you will, because you are choosing to refuse your only rescue. It says, because he has not believed. Perfect, active, indicative. In the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now listen. The message isn't intended to be long today because what we really need is to actually spend more time focusing on this. What I want us to do for a moment here is just to take a moment and ask, Lord, how much of my life really, first of all, has trusted you? with your rescue. Am I still fighting you, trying to tell you that, trying to tell you how to swim while you're rescuing me? Trying to tell you there's a shorter way to the shore than the one you're taking? Trying to question the tools you're using in my rescue? On the other side of it, if you have said yes and you are confident that you've put your trust completely in his rescue, my question to you is, well, what about the replacement? Yanks out all of that guilt and filth and shame. Well, let me ask you. Are you living an abundant life? The problem is we've trained ourselves to drown. You're aware of that. We've mentally conditioned ourselves to perish, even though we're not. It would be like Hugo was dying of a terminal illness. 
which refused him the ability to walk or to move his arms or to speak. And then he's completely healed. But somewhere in all of that, Hugo has a hard time realizing he can get up and walk. Hugo has a hard time realizing that he can stand up and move his arms or that he could say anything. Though he's completely healed, his brain has to realize there's a whole lot more to healing than just the physical removal of that, of that disease in the first place. There's the part where someone says, get up and walk. And that's when everyone stands up and takes notice. You could still run back to your addictions. They'll be waiting for you. Those pits, whatever those pits are. You just don't have to. Because you're free. You could still run the route or the route of those same traps that you've put yourself in through time after time. The lousy relationships and the emptiness and the, you know, the things that, we, that come part and parcel with living a perished life. But you don't have to. Or you could take God's abundant life. And watch what happens when he cracks open the bottle. Not of the corona that people are trying to use to escape and blow their brains out with, but rather with the abundant life that comes from the living well. Because he really wants the world to see what it looks like to be saved, and we should be looking different. So, as we go to prayer, let's take a moment quietly and ask God, where am I at with trusting you? And where am I at with this abundant life? Have I still, in this abundant life, trained myself to live a life that is no real life at all? And I'm parching myself next to, the, next to the font of living water. I'm dying of thirst. I'm dehydrated while I'm floating on the river. That would be ironic, except here you don't want to drink the river that's here because that sounds dangerous. But the living water, that's another story. So let's take a moment, quiet, and then we'll pray. Would you please? God, you've not told us for he who prays five times a day or three times a day or twelve times a day. You've not told us for the one who constantly gives. But rather you told us that you did all the work and you gave us the ability and the responsibility of saying yes. of resting in your rescue. But we confess we live in a world that's drowning and therefore survival is a very selfish mindset. And we will get no cultural support for our rescue from the world around us because they're still drowning. So first, Lord, 
show us the rescue in the right way. If there's any who needs to say yes to this gift, this believing, as it says here in his name, Jesus, God the Savior, is what his name means. The Bible says, if we're willing to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. So, if right now that's your choice to make and you've never made it before, pray this prayer with me. God in heaven, I am a sinner and I am perishing in my sin and my guilt. But what you tell me here is that you so loved me that you sent your only begotten Son. That if all I had to do was trust you, that I would not perish, but even at this very moment, I would have everlasting life. He wasn't sent into this world to condemn me. I'm already condemned without you. But that through him, I might be saved. And so I say yes. If you've done all the heavy lifting, to be honest, if you've done all the lifting whatsoever and all you're asking is for me to rest in that, well, then I say yes. If what you're wanting to do is rescue me and you're asking for me to simply go limp in your arms, well, then I say yes. I'm laying my life before you and giving you the freedom to rebuild it from the ground up. Reinvent me. I need you. And I need you more than I'll ever cognate on this side of life. But I recognize in giving that up, you want to replace that with abundant life. And in faith, I want to gladly take that. So I give you my death, my guilt, my shame, my filth. And in exchange, I gladly take your abundant life and say, now, may I have that, please. By faith, I gladly take it. In Jesus' name. As he died for me, on the cross for all of that to be paid was buried just like scripture promised on the third day rose again and offers me that new life now that abundant life that eternal life I say yes in Jesus name and if you agree with that prayer I ask you to say Amen and God here in this room we recognize as well that once we've said yes to you, the issue is not just emptying our hands and letting all that fall out, but recognize that you fill them now with abundant life. Forgive us for where we have disqualified that and lived a life like we had before, but instead replace that even right now with what real abundant life looks like. That while others are drowning, we'd walk on water and they'd see the difference. Please. Let us live that abundant life, that eternal life even now, knowing you, Father, and your Son whom you sent. And in that as well, we pray that for those around us, you've given us the privilege of influence. As you raise us up, we become part of the rescue team with you. We can't pull them to shore on our own. We, in essence, get to be the life rings you throw out that they grab a hold of so that, that 
you could rescue them. So Lord, give us a heart for the lost, even as you have, one that loves by giving so that if they would believe, they'd have eternal life. Give us a fresh hope in that, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.